Dear Lord, thanks so much for your goodness, for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just, we just love to sit at your feet and hear your word. And we want to hear from you today that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts that amazingly your word could be read and your Holy Spirit takes that word and does something unique in each and every one of us because you created us and you minister to us and you give us your word and you do all that work because you delight in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that, that you would even notice us, much less do all of that. And so we pray that you just do that again yet, Lord, by your spirit and have your way with us and guide us and lead us. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're new to this drill, uh, we go through a New Testament book or two, and then an Old Testament book or two, and then back and forth, back and forth, marching through the Scripture on our way from Genesis to Revelation. And today we wrap up 2 Thessalonians, but I tell you that all just to let you know that next week we'll pick up in Ezekiel chapter 1. So if you want to read ahead, you're welcome to do that. Um, as I tell my kids, sometimes I'll say, uh, you know, sometimes we have this little routine, you know, we hand wash the dishes, it's a long story. Uh, but I kind of like washing the dishes. You ever have like a, a thing you like to do? I like washing the dishes because there's, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm being just transparent now, I am absolutely worthless in the kitchen in any task other than washing the dishes. So it's kind of like, I know how to do that, so I'll just wash the dishes. Anyway, so I'm washing the dishes, and I'll say, I won't yell at any of you for drying. If anybody wants to dry, I won't yell at you for drying. So uh, all that to say, that was a very tangential uh, rabbit trail to tell you. I won't yell at anybody if you want to read ahead Ezekiel chapter 1 next week. So there you go. Um, so we'll go through, through here and then back to Ezekiel. The interesting thing I think about that is, is uh, as you notice from First and Second Thessalonians, there's a lot of discussion about end times events, but also just a lot of just real practical exhortations to this young church. And then next week, uh, it'll feel a little bit like a paradigm shift. We start getting back into history and prophecy again and I love that the Bible has so many elements for us to to glean and so um, for today we are here but for next week we'll 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 make that shift so uh, if you would just kind of be praying about that that shift so for today we wind up Thessalonians uh, this Thessalonian church, again, was established on Paul's second missionary journey, uh, Acts chapter 16 and 17. Paul was um, passing through uh, the region. He was in Thessalonica for only three weeks, which is amazing that a church would be birthed after three weeks of discipleship, uh, and a church that has obviously this level of maturity uh, that Paul's addressing these kind of things like he addresses and uh, the questions that they have and all of that. So the Second Thessalonians was written a little bit later, um, probably from Corinth. Um, and uh, this has kind of been a follow-up to some of the questions that were uh, asked as a follow-up from First Thessalonians. And so anyway, all that to say, 
as he winds down on this book, uh, we'll see some, really some great encouragement for the church as well as some pretty practical um, uh, exhortations, honestly. So uh, that's where that starts out. So here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And so Paul asked for prayer, but specifically prayer for the working of the Lord in his life. All right? Now, we all ask for prayer for one another, from one another. We pray for one another, right? And so oftentimes, and I'm not... I mean, these are real things. Oftentimes we have things, events in our lives, maybe health things, maybe relationship things, maybe circumstantial things that we pray for or that we ask other people to pray for. And those are all very good and we should be praying for those things. But let's not forget also to pray for things like that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, Right? Jesus said, you know, in his model prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God to be glorified. We want God's word to run swiftly. The truth is the word of the Lord is all that really matters in this world, and it needs to be declared everywhere. It needs to be declared everywhere. I read, I forget, or somebody was telling me, I forget where I got this. Somebody told me this recently. Uh, some survey of pastors in America, maybe, was like 60% of pastors don't have a biblical worldview. Right? Is that what we're talking about? 60% of pastors, some survey, don't have a biblical worldview. Well, to which I'd say that's kind of shocking, but kind of not, because so oftentimes in a church, and I'm not being I'm not being holier than thou. I'm just relaying what, what I've been taught over the years. If you don't teach the Bible, how can you expect to have a biblical worldview? Right? If I start teaching, like, my opinions and my politics and my ideologies and my preferences and my emotions and all that, next thing you know, you don't know what the Bible says. Right? I do that for a few years. You don't know what the Bible says. If I teach the Bible, we know what the Bible says. We can develop what's called a biblical worldview. We look at the world through a biblical lens. And that, people, is our project for life. Is to look at the world and look at our lives through a biblical lens. So, Paul's prayer is that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. For sure, that needs to be our prayer. Just as it is with you. So Paul wants the same thing for the, for the church. We should pray these things for one another. He says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So let me just suggest this. There are some obstacles in life to our ministry, our ministry of the word of the Lord running swiftly and being glorified, our, our ministry of declaring the word of the Lord to, to the world, to a world that needs it. There are obstacles and impediments to that, and usually they come in the form of human beings, right? Right, thank you. 
Usually they're in the form of human beings. What kind of human beings? Paul's just given us a couple of examples. Unreasonable and wicked men. You ever dealt with an unreasonable person? How do you know they were unreasonable? I was trying to unpack this in my mind a little bit, even this morning as I was thinking, was thinking about this. Usually we can identify an unreasonable person after we've tried to what? Reason, reason with them. We try to reason with them and then we find them to be unreasonable. And let me just suggest to you, I'll just, I'll just acknowledge now, I'm, now I am giving you my opinion, okay? But let me, just ex- let me just acknowledge that sometimes we learn that a person is unreasonable by trying to reason with them. And once we figure that out, have you ever noticed this? We now have a decision to make. You ever notice this? You know, I bet if I work this thing a little harder and a little louder, a little more passionate, I think I could probably turn you into a reasonable person. Anybody ever had success at that? I think of it like this. this. You'll think this is ridiculous, okay? Some of, you, some of you, this will stick in your mind. This might be the only thing you remember today. Others will think it's ridiculous. That's the risk I'm taking, okay? Raise your hand if you remember the old Dick Van Dyke show. Nice. Okay, I knew it. There's that one episode where he walks in. Duh. You want to sing the song? Come on. If you don't get this, I'm going to start whistling Andy Griffith. Okay. Well, and he walks in in that one episode, or the one season, I forget which. What's he do? He trips over the footstool, right? What's he smart enough to do in the next, in the next season? He does that little Dick Van Dyke thing, right? Did you see that? That little Dick Van Dyke thing. The little sidestep, right? Can I suggest, I was just thinking about this this morning. It's probably reasonable to sidestep the unreasonable person. Is that fair? It's probably smarter to sidestep the unreasonable person. You don't punch him in the nose. You don't further try to reason with him. You just kind of, you know, I was overhearing an unreasonable conversation or a, a reasonable person trying to have a conversation with a reasonable person just a couple days ago. And the reasonable person wisely tried to wind that conversation down as quickly as possible, right? Because this thing isn't going anywhere, right? So there are unreasonable people in the world, and um, we could pray for them. But you know, the truth is, I'm not going to spend a lot of energy. Here's the deal. This world needs help. This world desperately needs Jesus. This world desperately needs the Word of God. There are a certain percentage of people in this world that are receptive to that and and open to that and all of that. I'm going to spend my energy on those people. Is that fair? I'm not going to be drugged down because you, you engage for too long in an unreasonable, with an unreasonable person, you're going to be drugged down to their level. That's just the reality of it. And so Paul says that we may be delivered from, I like that word, 
delivered from unreasonable people, right? And then also wicked people. I think of it like, you know, the Good Samaritan, if you, if you don't like the Dick Van Dyke analogy. The Good Samaritan, right? Good Samaritan, you know, there's a, uh, there's a guy that uh, uh, was beaten and he's on the side of the road, right? Levite walks, walks, by, walks by. Where does Levite walk by? On the other side, right? Priest then comes by, walks by on the other side, right? The Samaritan, you know the story, the Samaritan comes by and he helps the guy, right? Well, I think when, it ter- when, you know, when, when we see people in need, we should for sure, if they have a legitimate need, we'll read about that here in a, in a little bit. If they have a legitimate need, we should, you know, and the Lord puts us in that situation to meet that need, by all means, meet that need. But if there's an unreasonable or a wicked person there, it's probably wise to kind of keep walking on the other side of the road. Does that make sense? And so Paul says we want to be delivered from these people. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. I love this word. I love this. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. See, we don't need to worry about defending ourselves against the evil one. God's going to do that. This is a great anchor verse. This is one of those verses, if you will, that I think, you know, you can kind of read through in your devotional life, and you could just kind of read through this. And, and let me just suggest that familiarity is, is our great enemy in, in many cases. Because we could, read a, we, we could read a sentence like this. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Yeah, I know that. We know that. But sometimes I think we need to maybe digest that a little bit. To me, this is an anchor verse. The Lord is faithful. When I think of the Lord being faithful, I want to go back to Lamentations, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, chapter 3. We read this a few weeks ago. Chapter 3, verse 22 through 26. This is Jeremiah writing during the midst of an 18-month-long siege of the city of Jerusalem where the people are being starved out. They're resorting to cannibalism of their own countrymen, their own family in some cases. There's just horrible, horrible, horrible beyond imagination circumstances. And in the midst of that circumstance, Jeremiah writes these words. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Can I tell you something? There is no circumstance that's ever hit human history that will ever hit our lives even in our day that's outside of the faithfulness of God. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. So Paul says the Lord is faithful. That's the kind of faithfulness we're talking about. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, you know, you may recall this. In Solomon's temple back in the Old Testament, as the people would, would walk up to the temple, 
I can only imagine what it would have looked like. But as the people would have walked up to the temple, there were two great pillars as they approached. Remember this? And they were, I had to go back and look this up. These pillars were, they were, they were made of bronze. They were 27 feet tall and 6 feet wide. They were massive. And they would be, as you walked up to the steps of the, of the tabernacle, I'm sorry, of the temple, as you walked up the steps of the temple, these two massive pillars would really speak volumes to you. Does that make sense? They would, be, they would be so impressive that they would speak volumes to you. And interestingly, this always was interesting to me, God told Solomon to name these two, temp- these two pillars, right? Now we have concrete sort of pillars on our porch. We've never thought to name them. Right? God told Solomon to name these, these two. The one on the left was called Jachin, if I'm pronouncing it right, J-A-C-H-I-N, which means he establishes. And the one on the right was Boaz, which means in him is strength. You get this? In him is strength. He establishes and in him is strength. So as I'm walking up that, tab- that temple, I'm walking up the steps to the temple to worship Yahweh God, I am reminded to the tune of 27 feet tall and 6 feet wide that He established me. He established a relationship with me and in Him is strength. What's that mean? It means He sustains me. Right? He's the author and the finisher of my faith, Hebrews chapter 12 tells me. Right? See, it's not a religion we're talking about. It's a very personal faith. And he would, in such a dramatic way, remind me every time I would walk up the steps to that temple. He establishes, and in him is strength. Right? Very personal. Please get this. Not religious, but very personal. Very personal. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish and guard you from the evil one, right? That's loving protection from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. I like this. Paul had confidence that these guys were going to keep on being faithful. Isn't that sweet? Paul told the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I love those kind of verses, right? Why do I love those kind of verses? Because I'm not completed yet. Amen. Right? Yeah. Raise your hand if you feel like you're, you're there. You've arrived. You're done. No. You've reached the pinnacle of spiritual enlightenment, right? Of discipleship in your life. You've got nothing more to learn, right? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> because he's undone. I'm done, right? So I'm out of here. No. None of us have arrived, right? We all have that feeling, We all have that realization. We all have that awareness at times that, man, I'm just, I'm so not there. That's a healthy, that's a healthy realization, by the way. I'm so not there. I feel like I'm on a journey, but I feel like I'm not at that destination. God would say, 
He who began a good work in you will complete it. See, when I realize that God is doing that work, that He established and in Him is strength, that God is doing the work in my life, my job is to be faithful. My job is to, is to live responsibly. We'll talk about that a little more as we go. But my job, you know, I have my role in it, but at the end of the day, he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul can say, you know what, we have confidence in the Lord among, concerning you that you will do these things. And so it's a great encouragement that, you know what, you can do it kind of a thing, right? Why can you do it? Because God is doing it in you. And we should all take, take comfort in those things, knowing that we are frail as human beings. He says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So I like this one too. I want to kind of pause on this one for a minute. May the Lord direct your hearts into more religious purity. Is that what it says? Into more uh, better church attendance and giving uh, records? Is that what he says? Into more like uh, doctrinal correctness? No. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The love of God. The love of God should be what drives us. Paul said, I forget which, uh, to which church. He says, the love of God compels me. I think to the Corinthians, the love of God compels me. That's what should drive us. Because here's the thing. I could tell you, I could tell you, all right, we're Christians. Here's what that means. I want you to read your Bible every day. I want you to pray every day. I want you to come to church every week. I want you to, to you know, tithe your money. I want you to give to missionaries. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And it feels like a list sometimes, right? Many of us probably had that experience, honestly, in church. And I love what I think, well, a lot of people say it. I always think of Nate was, Damien Kyle's on my mind now because Nate uh, talked about him on Wednesday night. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength then do whatever you feel like, right? If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do whatever comes naturally, I'm probably on pretty good ground, yeah. right? So may the love of, we, we, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The love of God should be our framework. It should be our anchor. It should be what drives us. Really nothing else is, is sustainable, really. And then finally says, and into the patience of Christ. I love this. I love the distinction he makes here. The love of God the Father, right? For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? The love of God is what drives us. But then there's the patience of Jesus. I like that he makes the distinction of the patience of Jesus because Jesus was human. Jesus lived in a, in a human body, right? He was fully God, fully man, living in a human body, right? Now, any of, you have ever, any of us have ever lived in a human body know that part of that involves we're now kind of limited to space and time. And if we're limited to space and time, we've got to learn during these years on, on this earth 
how to be patient because we're stuck in this thing of space and time, right? God the Father is outside of space and time. I mean, the Bible talks about the patience of God and all that, but it's not like he, it's not like that's probably as, as, I don't know, maybe I'm drawing too much out of this, but the patience of Jesus. You know, Jesus had patience, right? And the patience of Jesus is really the idea of waiting on the Lord to do what he needs to do, right? We need to wait on the Lord to do what he's going to do. We need to be, again, be responsible. But really, if you think about it, patience is almost equivalent to faith. Because faith means we're letting God do his thing. We know that God is going to do his thing. We're just, we're, we're doing our part, but we're you know, we're okay letting God be God, and we want to wait patiently for God to work out His plans in His way and His timing. We're not trying to fix God. We're not trying to help God. We're not trying to speed God up, right? But don't we wrestle with that, right? You know, how many of us have something that we want God to do, and we want Him to do it now, and we're, we're thinking He's a little slow on the draw, Right? It's the patience of God. So if we are motivated by the love of God and the patience of Christ, then we're equipped to navigate the affairs of this life. When we lack patience, when we lack the patience of Christ, then bad things happen, right? Remember the story uh, God told Abraham? You know, many of you know the story. God told Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son in your old age, right? Abraham said, cool. And he was married, so it's reasonable to think that the son is going to be with him and his wife, Sarah, right? Well, a few, you know, a few years tick by, right? No son, right? Now, the Bible's not real specific, like God said, you will have a son, you know. You know, he didn't spell out the details of it, which often, have you noticed, God doesn't always spell out all the details for us. But I think deep down... Abraham knew what that meant. You and your wife Sarah are going to have a son, right? But after a few years of no son, Sarah says, hey, we picked up this Egyptian handmaiden uh, back when our faith was floundering and we went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. That's one of their story, right? So we picked up this Egyptian handmaiden, so I got this slave here, and, you know, she, she'd probably work out all right. Why don't you have a son by her? That's probably what God meant. What are they doing? They're helping God out. Does God need your help? No. So they help God out, right? Sure enough, Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden, does have a son. His name is Ishmael, right? God later says, no, that's not what I meant. I meant you and Sarah. Be patient, right? Then Abraham and Sarah, in fact, have a baby. His name is Isaac, right? What do we have? We have the father of the Arab nations and the father of Israel, right? We have conflict today. Yeah. yeah. Where did that conflict start? It started with Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out, right? I would suggest, number one, God doesn't need our help. And number two, when we help him, we just make things messed up. So he says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the patience of Christ.
Patience is hard. I acknowledge that. Patience is hard, but it's good. It's very good. That's where, that's often where the discipleship happens, frankly, is the patience of Christ. So he kind of shifts gears here a little bit. It feels like a little bit of an abrupt shift, but we'll roll with it because this is Paul. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So these are some final exhortations. There's a place for exhortation, right? In this case, you know, we've talked about this in the past a little bit. There were some folks in the Thessalonian church who thought that Jesus was coming so soon that, you know, they could basically neglect their daily responsibilities because, you know, Jesus is right around the corner, right? And so maybe they quit their jobs and hang out, mooch off of one another, um, and doesn't matter because Jesus is coming back tomorrow, right? Now, in our day, so they were at least a couple thousand years off, right? But in our day, does it look like Jesus might come back tomorrow? Yep. Yeah. Honestly, I read news every, I read news all the time that is like, whoa, that's pretty curious, right? So I'm aware of this. I'm not living in a box, right? But if I quit my job, I thought about it a couple times, but no, right? Do, I, do we still carry on our daily duties? Yes. In the context of Father's Day, does being a father mean you have some responsibility? Yes. yes. Does being a human being mean you have some responsibility? Yes. Should we own those responsibilities? Yes. Yes. And here again, I think that I like this again, you know, whether you like the Dick Van Dyke example or the, or the, the priest and Levite that, of the Good Samaritan story example. Paul's kind of like, you know what, if somebody's neglecting their, their responsibilities and they're, you know, they're basically just walking around all disorderly, you know what, just kind of, you know, keep your distance a little bit, right? Keep your distance a little bit. Now, let me just say this. I had, this is super personal and practical. I had an Amish man tell me one time, an Amish friend of mine, that, you know, and he quoted this verse as to why he was shunning a family member uh, who wasn't, quote, walking according to the tradition that he'd received. Is that how the verse is to be taken? I don't think so. I don't think so. Sometimes we protect ourselves and our family and those that are in our circle, if you will, our circle of influence. Sometimes we, we protect from a disorderly person, but uh, there's a little bit of a balance there. Does that make sense? We don't, I don't like the word, I mean, the word shun just sounds harsh. But sometimes it's okay to withdraw a little bit. And so, the withdrawal is uh, different. So it means, you know, don't, be, don't hang out enough with them to be influenced. Why? Because these guys are disorderly. Don't hang out with them enough to be influenced by them. 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. And so, you know, they knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what they were supposed to do. And by the way, when he says, not according to the tradition which he received from us, what's the tradition? The tradition is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The tradition is everything that Paul spoke about in all of his letters. To love one another and all of those things. And so, you know, to totally alienate ourselves is to sort of take it out of context. But these people... You, you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. This is the second time he's used this word disorderly. Disorderly. There should be order in the body of Christ. There should be some degree of order in the body of Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 12. Talks about the analogy of the body of Christ with the human body, Right? Now, by the way, I'm talking about, you know, I hope you recognize we're a pretty casual organization here, right? Anybody notice we're a pretty casual organization? Okay, pretty casual organization, but yet an organization, right? As I believe Will Rogers said, marriage is a fine institution if you don't mind living in an institution, right? So, we're an organization, but a casual one. Fair enough? And yet, there needs to be some order not so much that it's religiously restricted or whatever like that, but there needs to be some order. And Paul gives the example of the body of Christ. And, you know, the, the body of Christ, uh, the human body, works together with tremendous order. Tremendous interrelationship and interdependence of all the cells of the human body. And someone or somebody or some cell that is disorderly is really like a cancerous cell or like an infectious cell. Does that make sense? You want to be a cancer cell in the body of Christ? No. You want to be an infectious cell in the body of Christ? No. Nobody wants that. He says, so you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. I mean, Paul was human. Paul knew, you know, he was not perfect. But, you know, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. We were not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so he goes into now a, a pretty specific example, a pretty specific situation. This, the thing was, with these disorderly people, they're quitting their jobs, they're neglecting their daily responsibilities, uh, they're mooching off of one another, all of that, and uh, Paul didn't speak well of it. And further, Paul modeled this behavior for them. You know, Paul, we know, was a tent maker, right? And so Paul himself, you know, he would, you know, work day and night, right? Some would say that, you know, he would uh, work as a tent maker by day, and then he would preach at night. And that was kind of his, when he says, you know, we, we worked with labor and toil night and day, that's what he's talking about. Why? So we wouldn't have to take from the people, right? He wouldn't have to take from people. He wanted to be self-supportive so he didn't have to take from the people. It's a great model. I've often said, well, I've, I, Nate always likes to quote me on this. I always say, in the church, there's a couple principles. Number one, money makes things weird. Anybody ever notice money makes things weird in the church? 
Money makes things weird in the church, right? I mean, we have to deal with it, right? It's just one of those things. But I think, and again, you know, some, some ministries are demanding enough that you don't have time or the, or the energy to, to be a tent maker. I totally get that. I totally get that. But I th- sometimes I think, this is just my bias. I'm totally now giving you just my opinion. I'm <laughs> acknowledging that. How much, how much baggage would wash away in the body of Christ if there were more tent makers, right? Where the pastor didn't necessarily have to take uh, his provision from the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But maybe it'd be healthier if there was a little more of that. So Paul's just given, and, and the biblical example of that is Paul. Paul was a tent maker, so he wouldn't have to. Now, there were times when Paul took up an offering, we know from the Macedonian churches, to give it back to the, to the church at Jerusalem because they were impoverished, right? And so there's a, there's a, there's a biblical example of that. And Paul gives some, specifically in 2 Corinthians, some instruction on giving and how to take up a collection for the saints and all that kind of stuff. But Paul himself chose not to do that. He said, we didn't want to be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul had the freedom and even the authority to, uh, to take up an offering for his for his personal provision to be met by the church, that would have been totally reasonable, totally understandable, totally within the realm of biblical authority, but he chose not to. And I think it's a good example for Paul. It doesn't apply to everybody, for sure, but it's a good example whenever possible. He says, for when we were with you, verse 10, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Wow. Paul's getting down to it now. If anyone will not work, doesn't say if anyone cannot work, right? There are people that, you know, for various reasons, cannot work. But he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And work does not necessarily, you know, as you know, necessarily mean a pay job or whatever, right? You know, my, my wife... My wife raised nine kids, homeschools me. You think she works? Yeah. Yeah. I think my wife works, right? So I feed her. Wow, you're such an amazing guy. You feed your wife. (laughs) Yeah. That's me, Mr. Sensitive, right? So he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If you want to blow off all your responsibilities in life, there's really no requirement for the church to take care of you. That's the reality. There's no requirement for the church to take care of you. Paul says, I, I forget where, I think in Timothy, you know, if a man does not provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words. Those are very strong words. So if anyone will not work, Neither shall he eat. So there you go. It's in the Bible. 
You know, ever since the Garden of Eden, man's task was to work. The man now, the, 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 the I'm talking now, you know, the, the curse on the woman was she'd have pain in childbearing. The, the curse on the man was he'd have to toil the land. And, you know, in a sense, even in that, God, God's grace is there because work is good. Work is good for a person. If, if we can work, we should work. He says, for we hear that there are some who walk around in a disorderly manner. Do you notice that word now for the third time, disorderly? I think he wants us to understand that. Not working at all, but are busybodies. Busybodies. Nobody wants to be a busybody. So they thought Jesus was coming back so soon they, they misapplied the Scripture. And misapplication of Scripture can be destructive. You hear me? Misapplication of Scripture can be destructive. This word busybody is also translated metal. Not like heavy metal, but metal, M-E-D-D-L-E. Right? Metal. You ever notice somebody that's got a little too much time on his hands wants to kind of get in everybody's business right metal busybody not taking care of my own responsibilities but sort of telling you how to take care of yours right we don't want to be that person we don't want to be that person Paul previously told this church back in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 but we urge you brethren that you increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. You know, these are super practical admonitions, right? Is it okay to be retired? Yeah. Is it okay to have a job that doesn't uh, give you a paycheck, right? To bear responsibility that doesn't give you a paycheck, right? Yeah. Yeah, all that's good. But we're talking about not being a busybody a meddler, an idle person. Not that we need to be overly, you know, busy. You know, in, in our society, we can tend to be too busy. So again, we're talking about being orderly. But just be aware of that, if you would. And again, he talks about these people are disorderly. This is written to a church. There's supposed to be order in the church, just like there's order in the human body. That involves everyone embracing whatever responsibility is entrusted to them by God. No more, no less. You know, the person that wants the responsibility that's not been given to him by God, that person's disorderly. The person that neglects the responsibility that is given to him by God, that person's disorderly. Right? And so let's not be either one of those. We embrace the responsibility given to us by God, no more, no less. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So again, you know, just like that verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands. Here he says this again, work in quietness and eat their own bread. It's okay to work, to be responsible. Some people need help, 
and to people that genuinely need help, we need to be generous. To those that need help genuinely, we need to be generous, right? But, um, but we also need to be discerning because guess what? Does anybody notice that there are moochers out there, right? There are moochers out there, right? And we need to discern those from the genuinely uh, needy. And we need to be very gracious to the genuinely needy. So, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So for those of us who aren't moochers and aren't busybodies and aren't meddlers, right? Back, back home now, back we're talking to us now, okay? But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Boy, don't we need to hear that. Just think about that. You ever grow weary just trying to do good? Just trying to put one foot in front of the other and be a responsible person and put your pants on one leg at a time and, and just trying to navigate this life in a, in a faithful, worthy manner as a child of God. Honestly, I, I'm acknowledging it now. It's not for sissies. The Christian life is not for sissies. You know, so often I think we get a... We, maybe in the church a little bit, do a little bit of a disservice sometimes. Well, I'll just, is it okay if I unpack this thought for a minute? That's English for, can I go off on a tangent? Sure. Okay, good. Sometimes there's, a, sometimes there's a temptation for a pastor to fill chairs. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh, we talk about church growth. We hire church growth consultants. Church growth experts, we bring them in and we ask them, you know, they'd say, don't, let, don't have this many empty chairs over here. That looks like several people died or something, right? So, you know, they'd tell us to get rid of those chairs and consolidate, and they'd have all these tricks, and, you know, next thing you know, I'd be passing out cotton candy, and we'd be given donkey rides and stuff like that. No, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but we're not doing that. But anyway, there's a temptation for the pastor to fill the pews. Or the chairs, right? And one of the things, if the pastor is not careful, especially if the pastor departs from the Word of God and starts sharing his own opinions, what then the pastor is, if he's not careful, he, and he kind of falls prey to that temptation a little bit to, to sort of grow the church. Because if I grow the church, if, if, if all of a sudden a thousand people start coming here, right? That, we'll say, reflects on my reputation as a pastor, right? Well, he must be doing something right. I'm just being honest and transparent now, right? And the temptation in trying to fill the chairs might be, you know what, if you just come to Jesus and come to this church, your life's going to be awesome. Right? Have we? I mean, seriously, yeah. am I speaking the truth? Yeah. Your life's going to be. You come to Jesus. Just please, I'm begging you, come to Jesus. He's going to meet all your needs. Right? And let's say you know, you come to Jesus. Then what happens? Does He meet all your needs? Yeah, but was it quite like it was sold to you? No. And then what do you find yourselves being? A little 
Starts with a D. Rhymes with misillusioned, right? You're disillusioned, right? Because you felt like you were sold Christianity, right? And honestly, that started by a departing from the Bible. That whole soapbox I just went off on started with a departure from the Word of God. Okay? On the other hand, if we read the Word of God, and, and by the way, if I, if I do what the church, you know, the church, if I, if, I, if I hire those church growth consultants, they're going to say things like, now don't talk about hell or sin. Just talk about pie in the sky till you die kind of stuff, right? You probably get a new Cadillac out of the deal. You, I mean, there's just going to, I mean, your life's going to just be flow with blessings, right? Does our life flow with blessings when we come to the Lord? Yeah, right? But one of those blessings is God allows us the privilege and the opportunity to understand how to be carried through some of the challenges of life by a loving and gracious, merciful Heavenly Father. And so He won't exempt us from challenges of life. He'll carry us through the challenges of life. And that's a better reflection of the reality of the Christian life. Right? And it starts with me knowing the Word of God, and it starts with, through the Word of God, me recognizing that I'm a sinner. Right? And so whatever the experts tell me that I need to not say about sin, i got to start with sin. Because I have a need. Because I am one of the all who has mentioned all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. I need a Savior for my sin problem. I've got an eternal problem. It's called sin. And I need a, I need a Redeemer. I need a Savior. And we can say, the wages of sin is death. Oh, that's, I don't like that. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the reality of the Christian message. But it doesn't exempt us from challenges in life. And so whether people want to hear it or people, you know, whether that means the masses come or the masses don't come, that's, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to faithfully teach the Word of God. And in so doing, I need to say, don't grow weary in doing good. Why do I need to tell you? Well, why does, why does Paul need to tell us? Why does God need to tell us? Don't grow weary in doing good because there's a very real temptation or very real possibility that we might grow weary in doing good. Why might we grow weary in doing good? Because this life is hard. And we would do well to acknowledge it. And that we need His love and His grace and His mercy to carry us through. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We love that. Oh, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, he says. Romans 5 verse 3. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now the hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now if coming to Jesus means we have pie in the sky until we die, and we're healthy and wealthy, and everything's awesome, and we have no challenges in life, 
Are we going to understand depth of perseverance, character, and hope? No. Where do we learn those things? Where do we grow those things in our lives? We grow them through tribulations. Who carries us through those things? Jesus does. And only then do we know that he's really anything other than a good fairy. But in that, we need to recognize, don't grow weary in doing good. It's interesting, Paul also told this to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So Paul mentions this twice. It's no coincidence that it's mentioned twice in the Scripture. If we try to do good in our own strength, guess what? We might lose heart. If we try to do good with false expectations, guess what? We might lose heart. But if we recognize that life is difficult, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this life, the, the love of the God compels us, the patience of Jesus motivates us, then we won't grow weary in doing good. Verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. That word ashamed is a little bit of a mis... It's, a, it's, a, it's honestly a poor translation. Uh, God doesn't really shame anyone into uh, right behavior. Uh, it just means that, you know, we, we kind of keep a distance from that person. Again, so as to not be influenced uh, by that person. Note the person that doesn't obey and kind of keep a distance from him. Now, there's an interesting thing. I've wrestled with this over the years, and I think of it like this. There's three kinds of people that God, that, that the Bible addresses in the New Testament, okay, R- roughly speaking. There's the person that, like you guys, loves the Lord, just wants to learn, just wants to grow, just wants, to, wants all that. How does the Bible talk to people like us? if we're assuming we're one of those. Bible's encouraging to us, right? Bible warns us. Bible gives us some, some direction and some encouragement, right? There's also the kind of person that just doesn't want to have anything to do with it, right? Maybe that person that's law, uh, let me just say, that, the person that doesn't know the Lord. Maybe that person doesn't know the Lord but is open, like we'll say the woman at the well, right? How did Jesus approach the woman at the well? She had been married five times. She was currently living with her present boyfriend. She'd lived a life of sin for all of her life. Sinner, 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 right? How did Jesus approach her? Did he start beating her up? No, he was super compassionate toward her. It's almost like that's how the Bible addresses lost people, right? If they're open, And then there's this third group of people that want to have nothing to do with God. They just want to disrupt the work of God. And what's fascinating is many of them claim to have some religion. The Pharisees are the the classic example, right? They thought they had it all together. They didn't need Jesus. How did you, you think about how did Jesus approach the Pharisees versus the woman at the well, right? Pretty harsh, frankly, right? So Paul says here, if anyone doesn't obey the word in in this epistle, if someone just wants to be antagonistic, just keep your distance. Don't fight them. Just keep your distance. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you know, he said, I don't want you guys to like only hang out with like-minded believers because, you know, or he says, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to, to disassociate with unbelievers because if you had to do that, you'd have to find another planet to live on, right? But here's what I do tell you, Paul says. He said, anyone who blatantly neglects the word of God and they call themselves a believer, Paul says, don't even eat with them. Paul's got, Paul's, Paul calls it out. He calls it out. Someone says, I'm a believer, but I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to neglect the word of God. I'm going to, you know, he says, don't even eat with them. Paul doesn't want us to be influenced by those people. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. They compromise the word of God. Paul says here, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and don't keep company with him. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there's a way we approach people that will say don't live as we think they should. There's a way we approach those people. I like what 1 Peter chapter 2 verse says, verse 17 says, honor all people. Can I tell you this? I believe, and I'm just going to say this uh, politically and otherwise, politically, socially, however you want to. We have, as Christians, a tremendous opportunity before us. We have, as Christians, a tremendous opportunity before us. Not necessarily to change the world, that's God's business. Okay? But I can tell you this. In the sphere that I live in, I have an opportunity all the time to engage in people that I don't necessarily agree with, people that I don't vote the same as, people that may hold different religious views than I do, right? Have you noticed that those people expect me to respond a certain way? They expect me to come out fighting. I'm sorry to say they have good reason to think that. They expect me to take the gloves off and just start yelling and screaming and cussing and carrying on. And if I can learn how to respectfully disagree with somebody, I have a friend that uh, he's much older than I am. Uh, we vote differently, we think differently. We go to pretty different churches. And we got this little thing going. Um, he'll send me a book. He'll, he'll recommend a book about a social issue. He, he'll read it. I'll read it. Right? And then I'll send him another book about the same social issue. It's a fun little exercise. And then we sit down. We've done this a couple times. It's not like we do it every week, right? We're both busy. We'll sit down, and we go to, and we'll go down and have breakfast and talk about these books, right? A little book club, right? Two people that don't agree. He's got, he's got bumper stickers all over the back of his car that kind of make me shudder, frankly. 
right? Why, am I do, why do I go through that exercise? I want to learn how to engage in people that aren't clones of me. Is that fair? Don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We have a tremendous opportunity for effective witness in this world by just being respectful. Because frankly, there's not a lot of respect left in the world today. Not nearly enough. And if we can just, I mean, you don't have to be an evangelist. You just got to be gracious. That's a great start. Can I just tell you, if you know your Bible and you're gracious, you're an evangelist. You're a missionary in a foreign culture here in America. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Those words ring true today just as much as they did 2,000 years ago. Peace comes from God because we are created to serve him. So inner peace only comes from God. He says, the Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So even Paul had um, some commentators say that there were people that were sending letters to these churches and uh, forging Paul's name or, or claiming uh, to be written by Paul. So Paul says, this is my signature. And then he closes, I love this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You remember the letter, the letter started with grace and peace, right? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is what saves us. Grace is what sustains us. So, we all have responsibilities, right? We need to not, we need to embrace those responsibilities. We need to not neglect those responsibilities. We need to not be busybodies and meddlers. We need to not be disorderly. But in so doing, we need to not grow weary in doing good, right? We need to pray faithfully. We need to accept responsibility faithfully. We need to be gracious with others faithfully. And we need to not grow weary in doing good as we enjoy the abundant life and the grace and peace of God faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you give us all that we need for life and godliness, and so we don't need to grow weary in doing good. And yet, Lord, we know that there are challenges of this life that, that honestly, we need you to carry us through at times. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just do that as graciously and faithfully as, uh, as you do. And we ask that you would grow us according to your word, and that you would guide us and lead us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you establish us and that in you is strength. You sustain us. So please have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.